Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the events of this week that have led up to this point. We thank you that even when our worlds are rocked and our hearts are shattered and it feels like it's only darkness around us, Lord, we know that you are still there. We know that you are still with us. We know that you are still comforting us and that you are pouring your power into our lives. Oh Lord, I pray that even if everything else falls away from us, that the only one we would rely on is you. Lord, we thank you for your word that fills our hearts with so many promises. And they're joyful because we know that you have made good and you will make good on all of them. We thank you that you are a good God, that you are our perfect Father, and everything that you promise will come to pass. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we are once again on Super Bowl Sunday. NFL teams have slogged it out all season, trying to get a good enough record to even make it into the playoffs. The Philadelphia Eagles and the New England Patriots, however, beat out every other team in the NFL to make it to the championship game, known to most people simply as the Super Bowl. No doubt there will be superstitious players on both teams who will do their ritual just as they do before every game. There are other well-known athletes in the sports world who do some pretty random superstitious activities before each game or match. We're going to go through a few of them right now. All, all these are from an article on mensfitness.com. But the first one we have, if I turn this on, is Serena Williams. Tennis legend Serena Williams all, always follows through with the same routine every match, every match night by bringing her shower sandals to the court, tying her laces a specific way, bouncing the tennis ball exactly five times before her first serve, and only twice before her second. Williams is so set in her superstitions that she claims that any loss that she suffers can only be attributed to not following her own routine perfectly. <laughs> Baseball Hall of Famer Wade Boggs, who primarily played with the Boston Red Sox, had a curious ritual every game night. Every game night, he ate a chicken dinner, which earned him the nickname Chicken Man. He, <laughs> he went to batting practice at exactly 5.17 p.m. every game night, did his sprints at exactly 7.17 p.m. every game night, and always wrote the Hebrew word chai, meaning life, in the dirt before going up to bat. Perhaps the best NHL goaltender, Patrick Roy, had some interesting superstitions. Just before the puck was dropped before every game, Roy would skate backwards towards the goal, thinking this made the goal appear smaller to the other team. Roy would also talk to each of the goalposts of the net he was defending, verbally and audibly thanking and touching them each time a puck hit them and ricocheted off instead of going into the net. And household basketball name Michael Jordan had a specific superstition. When he led his college UNC team to a national championship in 1982, he kept his shorts from that season. 
When he led the Chicago Bulls to six NBA championships, he made sure he always wore those same UNC shorts under his Bulls uniform shorts. His superstition even led to a basketball trend. Even though the 80s and 90s were popular for short basketball shorts, Jordan would wear longer shorts with his Bulls uniform to cover up his UNC shorts, which then led to the trend of longer basketball shorts in the, in the game of basketball. All of these famous sports icons had these personal and specific superstitions that they claimed gave them the power to win. While they would surely balk at the claim that perhaps it was just coincidence, or their confidence in their superstitions gave them the confidence to play well, those rituals were bereft of any power in and of themselves. It was all in their mind. But we as believers have been given actual power in dwelling or making a home within us, known as the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. He gives us the power to make each day a full, abundant, and powerful force for God's kingdom. But oftentimes, life gets in the way, doesn't it? Situations come up that drain us of that power, and we're left weak, hopeless, and it taking everything in us to get out of bed. Last week, we talked about how to restore the power through the Holy Spirit. We talked about how our power source never left us, but we often get disconnected from it. We likened it to a three-pronged electrical plug. You remember that from last week? That when we feel like we're hopeless and powerless, it's like a plug that has gotten jarred or is only connected to its power source sporadically. What do we need to do at that point? We need to secure the connection. Plug it back in. Those three prongs that strengthen our connection to that power source of the Holy Spirit are what? Does anybody remember from last week? You got it. At least one person paid attention last week. It was all directly connected to embracing and not running away from the presence of trials in our lives and rejoicing and uh, pray, therefore growing our prayer life and making us thankful in the midst of those trials. Why? Because trials are the only way that God grows us. Trials are the only way that God grows us. And trials are the only way God grows us into the completeness and fullness of Jesus. So, if we want the, fullness, the fullest life that God wants for His children, we must embrace the joy in difficult situations, the growth of our prayers, and the expression of thanks for every season God leads us through. Before any of that can happen, though, the corrosion and grime of sin, worry, fear, selfishness, and pride must be cleaned off so that there's a good connection made. And we do that through repentance. Once all of that is cleaned off, then we can be plugged fully back into our power source. 
However, last week we also referenced that because we're human, as soon as the next mountain comes along, all of a sudden, all of that connection to the Spirit we had gets jarred again and everything drains back out of us. What can we do to preserve that power? What can we do to ensure that we maintain a strong connection and that everything doesn't get drained out of us anymore? So the first point that we come to, we're continuing on in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, is the context, the context into which Paul is writing. We'll get into verse 19 in a little bit. But in order to understand the full meaning of verse 19, we need to first understand verses 20 through 22. So let's go ahead and read those. And if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be starting in chapter 20. If you didn't, that's perfectly fine. There should be one located in the, in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. So we can all see this together. If you're having trouble finding it, there's no shame. Look it up in the table of contents. I just want everybody to see it. All right, verse 20. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You're probably thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Did did he just switch sermon topics here? Did I really phase out that long and I was talking about something completely different? No. (laughs) We need to establish the context which Paul is addressing in order to, to understand what this truly means for us today in our context. When Paul wrote to a different church, to the Corinthian church, They had several issues that they were going through as a church. Now let's see what one of those issues was. He writes to the Corinthian church, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. See, we know the more famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, which comes after this, that of verses 4 through 8. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on and so forth. We're more familiar with that part of 1 Corinthians 13. But apparently, why Paul wrote that passage in the first place is that the Corinthian church was too focused, too focused on their spiritual gifts especially the ones of tongues, prophecy, and words of knowledge, which is a type of prophecy. They were so focused on these and using these that they had left love by the wayside. You can see the problem there. So Paul had to point out to them that specifically these three spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, and words of prophetic knowledge, which he'll get to here, were not going to last forever. The only thing that was going to last into eternity was love. That was the only thing that was going to last into eternity. Even faith and hope would see an end once we entered God's presence for eternity because there would no longer be any purpose for faith and hope. But love, love for God and love for each other would last forever. Paul explains all of this to the Corinthians when he says, love never fails. That's never going to end. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. 
But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And then he even goes so far as to say, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three. But even faith and hope are not going to last forever. The greatest of these is love. That's the one that's going to last forever. See, the Corinthians' issue was that they placed these three spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy, and words of prophetic knowledge, above all else, and let their cultivation of love, the very basis for the gospel in the first place, fall by the wayside. Now, why did I go through all of that? I, I went through all of that in order to compare the problem the Corinthians had which Paul had to correct, with the problem the Thessalonians had, which we see in our passage this morning that Paul also had to correct. Whereas the Corinthians elevated the spiritual gifts of tongues, prophecy, and knowledge above everything else in the Christian life, the Thessalonians had downplayed the power of these spiritual gifts, most notably the gift of prophecy. If Paul felt the need to tell them to not despise prophetic messages from their Christian brothers and sisters, what were the Thessalonians therefore doing? Despising prophetic messages from their brothers and sisters. So Paul outright starts out this very short piece of instruction by outright saying, Stop doing that. We can surmise that at least some of the Thessalonians, as one biblical scholar pointed out, were inappropriate, inappropriately wary of receiving prophetic messages from their Christian brothers and sisters. So Paul outright starts out this, this very short piece of instruction by outright saying, don't do that anymore. And they, the... The, the Thessalonian church was wary of receiving prophetic messages by way of the Holy Spirit indwelling them and gifting some of them with the spiritual gift of prophecy. At the same time, Paul wanted to be extremely careful with what he said. He didn't want the Thessalonian church to turn into a prophecy free-for-all and now have the problem that he would have to address with the Corinthian church in the near future. So Paul laid down some ground rules for how to approach the giving of prophetic messages in the church. Bear with me. See, a lot of people will disconnect verses 21 through 22. Let's read that through again. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every kind of evil. They'll disconnect those verses from the preceding verse, from verse 20 and interpret it as some kind of instruction for how a believer is just how to generally live his or her life. While it is wise and biblical to keep a good witness and live in a way that, and not live in a way that might cause a brother or sister to stumble in their own spiritual walk, a theology professor at Moody Bible Institute, whom I highly respect, pointed out that Paul is most likely not advocating the avoidance of all activities anyone might consider inappropriate. That's not what he's saying in these verses. Rather, verses 21 through 22 should be seen as directly connected to verse 20, and overall, therefore, verse 19, which we'll get to. Verses 21 through 22 are the ground rules for how to regulate allowing prophetic messages and not being inappropriately wary of them. This is Paul's instruction to the Thessalonian church. 
Any prophecy that is given by one who feels gifted with the gift of prophecy should be examined carefully. Paul will give further instruction on how those prophecies should be regulated in his letter to the Corinthians on the same topic, and this time in chapter 14. This is his, these are his ground rules for prophetic messages in the church. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others examine them carefully. Pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. And this is what's important that he wants to get across. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, believers in a church with the gift of prophecy, when they felt the Spirit had given them prophetic revelation, were to give that prophecy under the accountability of other prophets in the congregation. The real kicker of accountability for determining the validity of prophecies was that they all needed to match up. Nobody could give a prophecy that contradicted another person's prophecy. That was just obvious, as Paul points out at the end of that section. God cannot contradict himself, so two contradicting prophecies cannot both be true. That was how the early churches were to keep prophetic messages within the church in check. Those with the gift of prophecy were held accountable to each other, and those prophecies were thus, as Paul told the Thessalonians, examined carefully. If a prophecy was considered to be valid, that is, from God through the Holy Spirit, that prophecy was categorized as good, as the second part of verse 21 says, and should be clung to, that is, applied to the life of a church. If the prophetic message was determined to be invalid, that is, not from God, there was a good chance it was really from a demonic source and must be considered evil, as verse 22 says, and completely rejected. In other words, as Paul says, my dear Thessalonians, do not reject prophecy simply for the chance it might be from a demonic source, because there's a good chance it could be from God and could therefore be highly valuable for you to apply to your lives. Don't be scared of it altogether, but rather be wise and mature with it. Determine what's from God and what's not from God. Cling to what's from God, but completely reject what could be from demons. Some churches today still adhere to the instruction found in 1 Corinthians 13 through 14 regarding those spiritual gifts of tongues, prophecies, and prophetic words of knowledge. And I am not here to bash those churches. I want to make that very clear. That is not why I'm here. I'm not here to bash those churches. All I can do is show what I believe Scripture teaches that, a time, that there will be a time in church history when those three specific gifts cease to be in widespread use throughout the church. When referencing the, these three specific gifts, including prophecy, Paul uses a mysterious illustration. We already referenced this before when he says, Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. And then he says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. 
When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child. I used to reason like a child. When I became a man, when I matured, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. That's a very mysterious passage there. Verses 8 through 10 refer to these three specific gifts here. Tongues, prophecy, and prophetic knowledge as temporary gifts which are connected to a partial understanding of Jesus. I, I, let me explain. That interpretation comes from Paul's sentence in verse 12 when he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have also been fully known. In other words, at this point in the church age, we have a partial and incomplete understanding of who Jesus fully is. But there will be a point in time, namely the rapture, when we will know Jesus just as well as he knows us now. And that's what he refers to in verse 12. We will know Jesus just as well as he knows us now. Paul speaks of the time when the church will reach perfection. That is the full standard of Christ, which he wrote to the Ephesians about. When Jesus takes up all believers and transforms them completely. Because that is the time when these gifts will, will fully cease, it carries with it the theme of being connected to spiritual maturity. There's, undeni there's an undeniable connection between these gifts and spiritual maturity. For instance, Paul stressed the gift of prophecy so much in this letter and the letter to the Corinthians because he was writing to the early churches. He was writing to young and immature churches. Moreover, overall, the universal church itself had not grown to any state of maturity at that point. But over time, with the godly leaders, theologians, and pastors that God has given to the universal church through the past 2,000 years, the church has matured greatly in its knowledge of Jesus and faith in him. Because of this, generally, and especially in America, these three spiritual gifts are no longer needed and therefore shouldn't be stressed for pursuit any longer. In fact, as one biblical scholar pointed out, even by the year 430 A.D., the church father Augustine believed that the temporality of these miraculous spiritual gifts had already been realized, even by that point in 430 A.D. Around that time, the church held several councils in which they settled some crucial theological matters. Of course, and I say all of this while also saying, of course, in places throughout the world where the gospel presence is scarce, God may still be using these gifts to show the power of his Holy Spirit and show the validity of the power of the gospel. Now, you might be sitting here saying and thinking, okay, I understand the message on verses 20 through 22 in our passage this morning, but you seem to have missed the verse that I thought you were going to get to. What do they have to do with not quenching the Spirit? In verse 19. And especially, what does this have anything to do 
with what you opened your message up with, with our overall theme of preserving the power God gives to us through his Holy Spirit. I wanted to make sure we fully understood the context into which Paul was writing. Now we can talk about the connection to today as believers in Jesus. While Paul is specifically referencing the spiritual gift of prophecy in verses 20 through 22 within the context, his overall point is on not quenching the power of the spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit gives to believers. Do you see that? He'll specifically reference the gift of prophecy in the early church, but his overall message is don't quench the spirit with any of the spiritual gifts that he has given to believers. He says in verse 19, we've been referencing this, but let's read it together. Do not quench the spirit. There seems to be very little wiggle room there, isn't there? That with the exception of those specific three gifts of tongues, prophecy, and prophetic knowledge as we've already discussed, still carries with it the same exact power as Paul intended when he first wrote it. What am I talking about? Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4 when he writes on the same general topic of spiritual gifts as he references in 1 Thessalonians 5. He tells the Corinthian church, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons, but to each one. Is anybody left out there? But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The manifestation of the Spirit is what? Directly that Paul says right there outright. The spiritual gift he's given to you is the manifestation of the Spirit in you. You see, you see that in verse 7. Let me ask you, what is the source of God's power within us? The Holy Spirit, right? And how is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit is manifested or revealed within us? I already gave you the answer a second ago through the spiritual gifts that he has given to us. In other words, while God will strengthen us for certain tasks and will bring supernatural healing and power to overcome struggles and sin in our lives and will bring spiritual victory over battles we're embroiled in against the enemy of our souls, what is a source of power that is given to us at the point of salvation? Whatever spiritual gifts God has given to us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Amen? We like the ones I mentioned before, those popular and famous supernatural breakthroughs in our lives, but we often overlook and neglect the source of power that has already been given to us that needs to be cultivated and used in order to grow. Cultivating and using our spiritual gifts is one major way we keep that preservation of power and keep that three-pronged plug connected to our power source. Why? Because it forces us to rely on that power source of the Spirit to carry out the work God has given to us to do by way of the gifts He's already given to us to do that work. 
That forces us to stay focused on God's work and forces us to have to rely on His power and strength to do that work. That, in turn, keeps us connected to our power source. It's hard to get connected from that power source when it's being actively focused on, cultivated, and used, isn't it? It's perhaps an overused illustration, but somebody who cannot get up from a chair or get out of bed, their muscles do what? They atrophy. They get smaller because they're not being used. But somebody who's up and and working out and being active, it's very hard for them to lose that muscle mass, isn't it? Because they're constant. It's impossible because they're constantly using it and cultivating it and building it up. In turn, as we all focus on cultivating and using our spiritual gifts and are therefore forced to remain connected to the Holy Spirit in serving God, each other, and our community, guess what happens? Guess what happens? Our body of Christ, that is all of us as believers in Jesus, making up this local church, as each of us grows in our reliance on God's power, guess what happens? The whole body grows in our reliance on God's power. And God's power to do the work He collectively has for each of us as His church to do. Paul says this in direct connection with using spiritual gifts. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now you, the church, are Christ's body and individually members of it. We all, and I'm just pulling this from Scripture. I'm not saying this of my own accord. We all have at least one spiritual gift that God has given to each of us for the building up of His church and the growth of His church by reaching out to the surrounding community and bringing more souls into the church family and into God's family. The Apostle Peter points out, as each one has received, it's already been done, a special gift. Use it. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of that gift of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. If you're not writing anything down, write these verses down. These verses should look familiar. Might not, but they should look familiar because they're the specific verses we built our church vision on. And our church vision is this, to see every member and attender serving the church and community in the love and humility of Jesus. And that's our vision because we take it directly from this scripture. Not one of us, 
if we have given our lives to God through Jesus Christ, have been overlooked or neglected in the distribution of these gifts. Every single one of us has been given a spiritual gift. And the purpose of that gift is to serve God by serving each other as his children, his church, and the community he's made us a part of. What are some of the spiritual gifts that God has given out to us? We're going to pull up a scripture passage here, but this list is certainly not exhaustive, and it points out the extent with which we should use the gifts that God has given to us. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. If God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given to you. We already talked about that one. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, <laughs> use your gift. Be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Like I said, this list is certainly not exhaustive. If you've given your life to God through Jesus and you're not sure what spiritual gift he's given to you, ask him. It's that simple. God, what spiritual gift have you given to me? And if you're still having a hard time figuring it out, ask a more mature believer who's walked this road with Jesus longer than you have to also pray about it and then see if they have any insight, see if they have any counsel. We all have at least one spiritual gift. And as we've seen from Scripture, we must all be using those gifts to grow God's church. So, let's have the rubber meet the road here. If you're constantly having your God-given power drained away from you, by any and every situation that comes your way, the, quest, the question that must be asked is not, why me, God? Or, what did I do wrong to deserve this? Instead, the question must be asked, am I focused on cultivating and using the spiritual gifts that God has given to me? If you're constantly feeling drained by the power of God, you have to ask yourself the question, well, am I even using the spiritual gift I know God has given to me? Because that is a source of being connected to that power source. If we are a believer in Jesus, we've already been given the Holy Spirit. And therefore, we've already been given at least one spiritual gift. And therefore, we've already been given a task in serving God in which we must use that gift with the power that comes with that gift. That is how we preserve the power in our lives. And that is the purpose that God has given to each of us as being a part of this local church. So therefore, the big question is, are we? We all need to ask ourselves the question, am I personally? Not, I better hope this other person over here is listening to this message right now because they need to hear it. Am I? 
I fulfilling the purpose of serving God by serving His children, His church, and His community? Am I doing it? By using the gift that God has given to me and the power that comes with it. Am I doing that? That's one major way we stay connected to God's power. And that's how each of us, and as His church grows, includes everyone. Don't quench that power of the Spirit by refusing to use the gift He's given to you. If you refuse to use the spiritual gift God has given to you, what are you therefore doing? Quenching the Spirit. Don't quench that power of the Spirit by only using that spiritual gift on yourself. Don't quench that power of the Spirit by hiding that gift. The simple truth is that any of, if any of us, if any of us is quenching the power of the Spirit in our lives by quenching the power of the gift He's given to us, what are we doing? We're doing what we're doing is helping the enemy out to quench the power of the Spirit in our church. That's what's happening. That's a very powerful truth, isn't it? So let each and every one of us, as members of Jesus' body, recognize what God has gifted us with through His Spirit. Let us actually use those gifts to serve God by serving His children, His church, and the community He's put us in. And let us rely on God's power through that gift for a never quenching source of strength and power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, I pray that we would not let it fall by the wayside, that we would not sweep it under the rug, that we would not leave this place and ignore it, neglect it. But Lord, I pray that you would create a stirring in us. I pray that you would create a restlessness in us. Point out to us what our spiritual gifts are, what you have given to us, and how we can use those. Lord, we cry out to you for this, that as each of us grows in using that spiritual gift and cultivating that, and the power from your Holy Spirit grows with the cultivation of that gift, that we as a people will grow and we as a church will grow. We know that it is all reliant upon you, your strength, and your power. Lord, make us the people that you want us to be. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.